Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and I'm here once again to bring you some of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following over the past few weeks. We officially have a state budget, and it's unbalanced. State expenses will outpace revenues by more than $20 billion over the next three years, drawing from the state's fund balance to cover at least part of those costs. Now, this sets the state up for a mismatch between revenues and expenditures in future years, and of course leaves the state with less to cover the budget gaps in the coming years in the event of an economic downturn. Both the average incomes and the net headcount of New Yorkers moving to other states hit an all-time high during the first full income tax filing period affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, according to the most recent IRS data. The average adjusted gross income of New Yorkers moving to other states reached a new all-time high of over $130,000, and our net loss to other states came to 261,785 filers and dependents. Only California saw a larger loss during that same period. And finally, a little bit of information for all of you voters out there. New York school districts holding budget referendums next week plan to spend an average of $31,929 per student. Our annual school budget spotlight, which you can find on our website and linked in the show notes, details spending plans for 666 districts that will go before voters on May 16th. Now, one-sixth of those districts, about 111, plan to spend at least $40,000 per student, and 31 plan to spend at least $50,000. Now, despite receiving record-setting levels of state aid in the just-enacted state budget, districts are poised to also increase property tax levies an average of 2%. That's all for the three big stories, but keep listening to this episode. We've got a few good interviews coming up, and I will be talking with Ken Gerardin later, at the end of the episode, to talk a bit more about the budget process that just played out last week. Stay tuned. All right. Welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm here with Ken Moltner, who, among other things, is a practicing attorney, particularly with past experience in election law. Ken is also the author of Voter Access, Election Integrity, a chapter from the Empire Center's policy compendium, The Next in New York, which you can find at nextnewyork.net. Ken, so glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for making the time. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about elections today, an area that you have some experience in. So specifically, your chapter in The Next New York focuses on changes to absentee ballot rules. Um, give us a little bit on the status quo, of what's, what the status is in New York right now. Sure. Um, I'd like to just kind of put it in a, a general perspective for the audience first, uh, if I may, and then uh, address specifically the question about absentee balloting. A citizen's right to vote honestly is enshrined in our state constitution. It's uh, Article 2, Section 1. And in the November 2021 uh, referendum, our citizens prioritized protecting the integrity of elections against voter fraud over the proposed constitutional amendments, including universal uh, absentee uh, balloting that proponents said would have made it easier to vote. And polls have persistently uh, excuse me, reflected uh, this uh, priority. So our citizens' message 
uh, is clear. The election law must balance the right to vote with procedurally open, fair, and efficient elections. Well, let's now, dig in here for a second. I was gonna, I was gonna go there in a minute, but as long as you brought it up, so okay. you're talking about the ballot initiatives from 2020, right? Right, there, right, right. One of opinion. which, uh, one of which was on uh, absentee balloting, which was rejected uh, by the voters universal universal absentee. Um, uh, ballot voting. Yeah. Right. And that, and that, and what does that mean? Universal absentee ballot. That means you can get an absentee ballot without with no cost. What's the problem with that in your view? <clears throat> the problem um, with uh, that is that, first of all, we have uh, already had uh, laws um, that have addressed, uh, had addressed that. New York section, uh, excuse me, New York. State election law eight four hundred, which uh, specifically delineates when a citizen may vote by absentee uh, ballot, and it uh, specifically uh, uh, delineates either not in the home county or there's an uh, 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 illness which will prevent one from uh, going to uh, the polls. So uh, first, it goes against uh, the grain of the election law. But secondly, there are no checks and balances. If one can just ask for an absentee ballot and get it, we can't ensure the integrity of the election and or the integrity of that particular voter's vote. And um, indeed, the problem with what Governor Hockel uh, did by signing legislation um, that was effective January 1, 2022, it amended the definition of illness in New York State Election Law uh, 8400 to state that illness shall include but not be limited to instances where a voter is unable to appear personally at the polling place because there is a risk, emphasis added on the word risk, of contracting or spreading a disease, I'm adding emphasis on the word disease, that may cause illness to the voter or other members of the public. Now, the difficulty uh, with that is that the common cold is defined as a disease that may cause uh, illness. And the mere risk of contracting the common cold under the amended definition of illness renders a voter unable to appear personally and thus entitled to an absentee ballot. So <clears throat> the difficulty uh, here with that type of uh, uh, legislation is that, first of all, it went against and went directly against the vote wishes of the voters. The on uh, in, in those uh, proposed amendments to the state constitution was specifically an amendment of voters. Do you want a no excuse absentee ballot? The voters said no. Yet two months later, Governor Hockel signs legislation that effectively just does that. It's going against the will of the people. There are no checks and balances, and it could affect election integrity. So I guess if we're if we're gonna mince our if we're gonna mince our words here, um, uh, it's technically not no excuse. It's literally giving them an excuse to require an absence. That's certainly that's certainly. It seems, should... against, it seems to go against what the people said back in November, um, and then but I and so maybe we don't draw the correlation that they wouldn't accept 
any excuse to allow absentee ballots, but it is it is to your point. I think there's a construction issue with this in terms of following the law of the Constitution in terms of giving people access to absentee ballots and then unilaterally making that change based on what looks kind of like a loophole, right? And so if you want right. to present those changes, if you wanted to go after it, um, going through the state constitution was the right move the first time. If you want to try that again, that avenue would still be open to Governor Hochul or to anybody else who wanted to do it. Um, but it, needs to be, it should be done properly. That's a that's a rule of law question more than anything else, in my view. Well, it's a rule of uh, uh, law question, and uh, but to me, it goes back also to the will of the voters. It went before the voters. The voters said no. Now, I hasten to add that the law as signed by Governor Hochul um, had a sunset provision of December 2022. But nevertheless, that does not mitigate the danger, uh, in my view, because once again, either, uh, the legislature can pass it and Governor Hockle uh, can sign it, or as Governor Cuomo did, if there is a emergency perceived or otherwise, then it could be uh, done by executive uh, fiat. So I don't believe that um, the danger is at all uh, mitigated. These are the type of proposals, in my view, that are anathema to the will of the people and should be done, as you point out, uh, properly. If it's going to be done, do it through the state constitution. Yeah, and I think we're we're getting into two specific issues here. One is, again, this the, the process, the rule of law, making sure we're following what the constitution lays out. The second is actually debating the terms of how and if, to what extent you allow absentee balloting to take place. There's the current... There is the proposed and rejected, and then there is sort of where you think that um, maybe the governor or the legislature or whoever is pressing for changes to this want to land. Um, and so that's a debate at, at the minimum that should be had and should be had publicly. And, and those change, any proposed changes should go to the people. In the yeah. last time it did, they said, no, thank you. Correct. I think that's right. And uh, my my view uh, is that the legislature, um, in enacting um, the election law section um, eight four hundred, uh, created an appropriate balance. It said, if you're not in your home uh, uh, county, or you're unable to personally appear at the polling place because of illness or physical uh, disability, uh, I think that that is a balance. And if that balance is going to be changed, uh, I agree with uh, what you're saying in terms of uh, the approach. That's how it should be done. Sure. Um, all right. And so so absentee balancing is one issue that you talk about in the chapter. There are several others. And I think what we've already hit on a little bit is um, there are some problems with access, election access, ballot access. Um, there are some issues that I that that should be solved. I think everybody agrees that there are problems in the system. What there's not agreement on is what specifically those problems are, and maybe more importantly, what the solutions are. So you've outlined a handful of things that you think should be changed. Um, do you want to just quickly go over those and we can dive in as appropriate? Um, sure. Um, so in addition to uh, strengthening the existing uh, absentee balloting uh, restrictions that uh, we've discussed, uh, ballot harvesting. Uh, ballot harvesting is a uh, an, another issue. And um, as we point out in uh, uh, the uh, chapter, in uh, 2020, uh, the general election campaign, there were instances uh, by uh, both parties to exploit the ambiguity created by the current law. Um, 
to uh, in terms of ballot uh, uh, harvesting. Tell us, that, tell us what ballot harvesting is for anybody. Hmm. Uh, ballot harvesting is basically other people uh, uh, obtaining a uh, assigned uh, absentee uh, ballot and bringing it to the election. Um, uh, 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 the board of elections in the appropriate uh, county and providing uh, and providing those ballots. So it is an offshoot of uh, absentee uh, voting because obviously the voter is not going into the booth, but the voter is having his or her ballot uh, taken by somebody else uh, to the board of elections. And again, it's a matter of checks and balances. Uh, there is no. Uh, there is very little, if any way, to ensure the integrity of a person's uh, uh, ballot if person A is handing it to person B or there are a number of ballots being handed to person B to, uh, to bring that. Again, it goes back to the fundamental issue of election uh, in integrity. And um, there have been a number of instances of claims of potential fraud in terms of uh, ballot harvesting. And the question arises, um, why is that uh, necessary? Uh, why is it even necessary to uh, harvest uh, uh, ballots? There are so many uh, ways that people are able uh, to vote that I think there's a serious question of the necessity for uh, it to uh, uh, be done, but at least, if it's going to continue, there has to be serious penalties for violation. There have to be consequences for it. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, I was I was I was reading your chapter again this morning and I was thinking about some of these issues. Um it it, it seems almost unbelievable that there's not a better system for tracking this through technology. Um, and, and, and this is sort of anecdotal on my end and I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't rehearse this at all, but <laughs> doesn't it seem a little crazy that given the state of technology, what you can do with databases, the prevalence of, of technology, I mean, we hold massive, we hold micro, like really great processing computers in our hands all day long, and we can't figure out a way through the election process to verify identities in real time, whatever the course may be. And this gets to another well, brought up, which is proof of ID, but to know whether a ballot has been cast, to know whether a ballot being cast mm -hmm. is somebody who is deceased, that doesn't seem in the grand scheme of things to be that difficult. What is, I mean, yeah. is there a barrier there? What is it? Yeah, it, it's uh, it, 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 it's a good point. And to go to point, and, I, and I'm going to mention something that's not, uh, in the chapter, um, and that's uh, election law section 8408, uh, effective April 1, 2022, which is online absentee ballot registration, which to me actually just exacerbates the type of problem that uh, you're talking about. And that election law section, um, which is entitled electronic absentee ballot application transmission uh, system, uh, provides in part uh, the State Board of Elections shall establish and maintain an electronic absentee ballot application transmittal system through which voters may apply for an absentee ballot uh, online. And <clears throat> the alarm's already been uh, sounded there. Uh, there was already uh, uh, a published uh, uh, article in a, in a newspaper uh, about <clears throat> 
how uh, somebody had ordered um, uh, celebrity uh, uh, ballots under the name of celebrities. Um, and that's in a uh, in a uh, uh, published article in, in newspapers. So, you know, <clears throat> um, to to your point, uh, while there is now uh, the potential for um, uh, uh, online absentee balloting, and to your point about the technology, there is also the potential uh, for abuse with all the hacking, with all the potential problems that we have through electronic uh, transmissions, this just exacerbates it. And uh, also when you don't have the in-person voting, and that's exactly another uh, argument for in-person voting, you have the potential for fraud and uh, not ensuring the integrity of an election. All right, so we went through um, ballot harvesting. We've talked about absentee ballots at great length at this point. Yeah. Uh, briefly mentioned uh, proof of ID. There's a handful of other things you've included in your chapter that you'd like to see change. Um, early voting sort of related, right? Um, giving people the access to get in. Early, yeah, early voting, uh, early voting. Yeah, I would, uh, I like to see that uh, change. I understand the salutary uh, purpose uh, behind it, but uh, but why nine days? Um, and in fact, studies have indicated that um, it has not increased, increased voter participation. There are also issues with those <clears throat> nine days. Uh, uh, a number of elections, especially special elections, are held during the school year. So, so schools now, public schools are affected uh, by that. And it seems uh, to me that uh, to make uh, more sense that what you do is you scale back uh, that uh, nine-day uh, period and you scale it back to two days. Maybe there's the Friday uh, before the election and the Saturday, so you have a weekend day for those people who work and can't um, uh, vote um, during the week, have the Saturday, um, and then you have your election on a, uh, on a Tuesday. So, so some but less. Some but less. Correct. Somebody, and there's also a tremendous cost to it. There's a cost benefit analysis um, that has to be uh, weighed. Uh, of course, the idea is to have people to vote. We're a democracy. We want people to vote, but we want to do it in a way that ensures, as I said, in integrity. And we want to do it in a way that's also uh, cost efficient. And nine days uh, does not uh, promote either of those salutary goals. Yeah, well, and I think that's a maybe that's a good point for us to leave it is finding the balance between having fair, properly executed elections and making sure that the voters have access, can get there, can and want to participate in them, which is the overall goal, I think, of, of everybody. Um, Ken, there's a lot more in your chapter. Again, we can find it at nextnewyork.net. Um, thank you for making the time. Thanks for having this conversation. This is an issue that's going to continue to come up, I think, um, uh, over the course of the years, certainly every two years and every four years, more so than in other years. But we'll keep our eye on it and maybe we'll get to talk about it again. I hope so. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the final segment of Messages of Necessity. Uh, once again, my name is James, and I'm here with Ken Girardin, a fellow at the Empire Center. You know him well from this show. And today we're talking about the budget. Um, as you know, the budget finally passed last week. And if you've been following the Empire Center blog, you know it's remarkably big and it's remarkably unsustainable. 
but it was also remarkably late. And at the same time, it was rushed through with what's called a message of necessity. Uh, and to recap for new v- viewers, uh, what our show namesake is in terms of Albany and uh, rulemaking and jargon, um, a message of necessity allows the governor to waive the constitutional requirement for bills to age on a lawmaker's desk for three days um, before it is voted on. So that's bad. Uh, it's always bad. But Ken, uh, welcome to the show. And please, why was it especially bad here? It was especially bad to see the legislature waive the three-day waiting period, in part because the size of what they were voting on, it was a $230 billion spending plan, and the fact that it was unnecessary to waive that waiting period. People might remember, on the Thursday before lawmakers started voting, the governor announced the framework for this deal, or was it the, the conceptual deal that had been reached, which meant... It was at the point where you could start printing bills and letting the public see what was going to be voted on. Instead, that didn't happen. And details didn't start to come out until the day that lawmakers were voting on these. And that meant not only could the public not see what their lawmakers were voting on, but the lawmakers themselves couldn't really make informed decisions about what was coming in front of them. There are details in this budget that we're just now getting our arms around. For instance, the fact that Medicaid, the the massive healthcare program that eats up about a quarter of state taxes is going to grow 13 or 14% next year based on new calculations from Bill Hammond. These weren't calculations that were on the law, on lawmakers' desks. This was stuff that Bill Hammond found out after the fact. So these are the sorts of things that might have come out if we'd waited the required three days, but the legislature didn't. Instead, they rushed stuff. And like I said, it was completely unnecessary because the deal the details were ostensibly finalized five days before they started voting. Ken, I agree with you that these messages of necessity are unnecessary, and yet they've become increasingly common in the budget process in Albany. I I think it was, what, eight out of the last 10 budget cycles have used a message of necessity. Has Albany gotten too used to this? Is it now an integral part of the budget process? I'd say first the public has gotten too used to it. And they've gotten conditioned to the legislature making major decisions behind closed doors. Fun fact about messages of necessity, people often frame it as the governor using it as a tool to ram things on the legislature and rush things. The reality is messages of necessity only come at the request of both legislative leaders. So it's it's tempting to frame this as a, a problem with Governor Hochul, but the reality is it's the members of the Senate and the members of the Assembly choosing to do business this way. Oh, I didn't realize that. Is that is this almost like an unspoken deal to get? Because a lot of the times when you're passing a budget through and you're rushing it through, there's a greater chance of uh, bad policy or policy that lawmakers might not want to see debated, making it through and sneaking under the radar. Is that part of the the negotiation here or the unspoken deal? Part of the allure? Yeah, right. It's absolutely part of the allure. The budget is a place where you can cram through unrelated policy and have it tucked in. And uh, basically, worst case scenario, it's going to be a news story for a couple days after the budget is adopted. Right. So, So then it's really become a tool not to rush through a budget, but to almost get your laundry list of of wants rushed through and nobody notices. So so how then 
how can we increase the transparency in the budget process? The first step is for the public to understand where things have gone wrong. With messages of necessity, again, that's not Governor Hochul waving a wand and moving things to the opaque process. That's the legislative leaders in the Senate and the Assembly requesting messages of necessity, and then the rank and file members of the Assembly and the Senate voting to accept that message of necessity. So this is something where our state lawmakers can uh, do a better job themselves personally saying what they will and will not accept for the budget process and, and saying that at the onset. And they should be asked point blank, why are you doing this? Why are you deliberately making the budget process more opaque? Not just because the state constitution says we should do otherwise, but because common sense says we should be doing otherwise. The, the practices in other states indicate we should be doing otherwise. As always, good advice, Ken. I think we'll leave it there for this episode. Uh, hopefully Albany pays attention for the next budget cycle. To all our viewers, thank you so much for listening again to this episode of Messages of Necessity. Be sure to subscribe and review the show uh, and keep it right here. Make sure you keep tuned to our blog. The show notes will have all the links of everything we talked about today. And until next time, take it easy. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.